Is there anybody there? It seems I'm all alone again. Does anybody care? This planet's empty. I see no signs of life. Please don't tell me that the human race did not survive. There are no people in the future. There are no people. There are no people in the future. No people at all. There are no people in the future. Where did all my people go? There are no people in the future. Let me try my people call. Hey, everybody, 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 welcome, welcome. Yes, it is Friday, August 25th, 2023. Welcome to Raging Chicken's Friday Politics Roundup. This is Kevin Mahoney, editor and founder of Raging Chicken. Each week, we break down the good, the bad, and the ugly in state and national politics. This week's going to be a little uh, more chaotic in the breakdown than it could be otherwise for a bunch of reasons that I'll get into shortly. You can help support this show. Become a patron for as little as five bucks a month. Head on over to patreon.com slash Press for all the details. And you can help out the show right now by heading over to our YouTube channel if you're not there already. Smash that subscribe button, like the stream for this show, and hit that notification bell so you know every time that we go live. And if you're one of our awesome podcast listeners, make sure to leave us a five-star review on whatever platform you listen on. And leave a comment to let other folks, you know, know why you like the show. Little things like this help other people find the show. It's great. Look, everybody, we cannot let Paul Martino, Moms for Liberty, and their oligarch friends buy our schools and push extremist politics in our community. Raging Chicken has teamed up with Level Field to launch a truly community-rooted pack to invest in organizing, supporting local and statewide progressive candidates, and unmasking the toxic organizations injecting our communities with right-wing extremism. We're putting small-dollar donations to work to beat back the power of big money, you get more information and drop your donation at ragingchicken.levelfield.net. And look, for more PA Progressive Talk, tune in the Rick Smith Show's live stream at 9 p.m. Eastern. His YouTube channel, Twitter, Facebook, subscribe to his podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Head over to ricksmithshow.com for the latest across all the platforms. Yep. I think I should probably talk to you a little bit about the show today, too, right? Yeah, just to skip right over that. I don't know, but here we are. Um... But on today's show, um, we're going to talk a little bit about, yes, uh, the Penridge School District meeting, uh, school board meeting this past Monday, um, and what uh, some little thoughts on this, some kind of some comments on this, and get us, I guess, focused on where we're going to be spending some time over the next several months for these school board meetings. Um, but to come other some stuff, too, as well, like what would happen... If we didn't have to focus all our school board time on, oh, I don't know, trying to defeat right-wing extremism, um, try to prevent our public school curriculum being handed over to uh, Christian nationalists, oh, I don't know, what could we do? Well, maybe we could do what New Jersey did and begin to be the first school district, our first state in the country right, to require climate change education right from the get-go, right from first grade on. Talk about that. These are the possibilities that we could kind of engage in. Pretty cool. Um, and we know that, uh, you know, Bucks County is going to be at the forefront of uh, the upcoming uh, municipal elections, not just as uh, important for our lives as it will be, but it will be a test case and it will set a precedent nationwide from everything from the county commissioner's race down to 
local school board elections. Hey, Kirsten, what's going on? What's going on? Yes, yes, late afternoon time. Indeed, indeed. Um, I also wanted to give a shout out to um, Steve Oros. Now, if you remember, Steve Oros was, we've talked about them on the show fairly recently. Um, I wanted to kind of bring that back as it's the beginning of the school year. Uh, Steve Oros um, won his lawsuit against Kutztown University um, for denying him ADA accommodations during COVID because, uh, well, why did he ask for those accommodations? Well, he had open heart surgery and his doctor said, you go back into the classroom when there's COVID, you're going to die. So he said, hey, I'll teach online. Now, we, I've been doing that the past year anyways. I'm excited to be able to get back in the classroom, even if it's online for this year. The administration said no. They gave a blanket statement. Uh, we're going we're gonna to read through a little bit of uh, an article here, and I'm very excited that Steve's going to be back on the show soon. Um, and we're going to talk about his case. We'll talk a little bit about uh, what the outcomes are. I know he is today, actually. This is um, He is out in front of um, one of the uni- University has like a, like a beginning convocation or whatever for faculty and staff this morning. I was not there. And uh, Steve was out there handing out uh, information about the results of his case and what other faculty need to know, right, about their ADA rights. You know, it'd be great if there was, I don't know, some kind of organization, like faculty organization of sorts, that was out there doing that for him and had been doing that all along. But I digress. Um, we'll get into all of that and more. What else? What else? Well, yes. Again, like I said, you know, check out the RickSmithShow.com for more PA progressive talk. Got to check out the Sisters of the Night Caucus podcast, the amazing PA women stirring the political cauldron behind this podcast. Rock the house. And they know where the bodies are buried. Make sure to follow them on Twitter at, at the Night Caucus. That's at the Night Caucus on Twitter. Uh, and follow their podcast on Anchor, Spotify, iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you haven't heard, The Signal is a new podcast from the Bucks County Beacon. The Signal is hosted by the Beacon's editor-in-chief, Cyril Michaleko, and produced by yours truly. That's right. Twice a month, The Signal will shine a light on right-wing extremist currents streaming through Bucks County and beyond. Cyril invites guests who can provide insight, analysis, and organizing solutions so that we can steer the community toward calmer, saner, progressive roots. Check out the podcast directly at buckscountybeacon.podbean.com. Or wherever you get your podcast, right? And if you can't remember that, just go to the Bucks County, BucksCountyBeacon.com. There's a link right there. You can check all the podcast episodes. And there's big news coming up. You're going to be so excited. Uh, we got some great episodes that are going to be um, kind of hitting the airways um, this coming week. And um, there's uh, just some really good stuff headed your way. So, But that's not my... Uh, that's that's not uh, my business. That's not my place to tell you what that business is. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Anyways, attention all you gamers out there. The Game In, that's with two N's. The Game In is a Quaker Island Place black family-owned gaming store. They're friends at the show. They got everything for Retro N64s, latest consoles, video games for all platforms, collectibles, action figures, Funko Pops, walls of Funko Pops. Yep. And you got a question about a game, looking for something hard to get, they've got you covered. Check them out on their Facebook page or follow them on Twitter at, at TheGameIn, that's with two N's, and shoot them a message or drop them an email at TheGameInPA at gmail.com. Special shout-out goes to Jonathan Mann, who wrote our intro song, There Are No People in the Future. You can check out all his great stuff on his YouTube page and follow him on Twitter at, at SongAdayMan, that's with two N's, at SongAdayMan on Twitter. Look, everybody, you know it as well as I do. If we want progressive future, we need progressive media. Support Pull No Punch's homegrown progressive media today. Become a patron of Raging Chicken for as little as five bucks a month. Check out 
patreon.com slash rcpress for all the details. We're here for the fight, but we need you. Become a patron for the price of a good beer once a month. Help keep the media in the movement and the movement in the media. Become a patron for as little as five bucks a month. I go to patreon.com slash rcpress today. Yes, indeed, everybody. Welcome, welcome. I know it feels like it's forever, right? I mean, I know I had a show this past Monday, um, but uh, it's been vacation. Um, and then we had that that was off the, the Friday before that. Um, just lots of stuff going on. Um, and today, uh, I thought I was not going to be able to do the show today as well because uh, it was just one of those days, right? It's like the weekend, like the last day of summer before school starts. If you hear some last uh, chime in from the peanut gallery, um, that's my daughter and my niece who are over here <laughs> celebrating the last day of summer. Um, they're uh, watching Moana, <laughs> Moana as uh, uh, Moana. I, just, I was doing that on purpose just to make you laugh. Sorry. Um, uh, I, was, I was trying to be, you know, whatever. Anyways, uh, I was doing the dad thing, you know, um, but uh, yeah, so if you hear anything, that's that's what it is. That's part of the chaos of this day. Um, there was orientation over at the high school. Uh, my son's going for orientation and um, um, lots of other moving parts today. So anyways, but I did not want to let the day go by, um, another Friday go by without doing a Friday politics roundup, even though this is going to be a little bit of a... Uh, little bit of a briefer one and uh more of a the way i kind of been thinking about today a lot is like a stage setting for where we go forward you know because it's something else i mean if you listen to the show on monday i was livid on monday um i played a couple clips of what was happening at the penridge school board meeting but um it, it doesn't really do justice to or that one show obviously doesn't just quite do justice to the extent and the depth of what is happening at Penridge you know and frankly frankly we need more attention to the the kind of undermining of public education that's happened at at, at Penridge and you know i i i guess it never ceases to amaze me, right? Or maybe I'm always overly optimistic or something. I think something is going to sort out in the wash, so to speak, right? That, okay, uh, you know, eventually people are going to realize, eventually people are going to realize how important what's happening at the Penridge School District is for local, state, national politics. I mean, this is like, I, like, I literally cannot believe I'm living in the backyard of, like, a Christian nationalist a takeover of public schools. And not in the way that it used to happen, right? It used to happen that you had these people come in and they just push for charters because really what they want is they want the privatization of public schools. And it's really the privatization of curriculum, not of money, right? Because people down from Betsy DeVos right down the road – what they try to do is they have tried for decades and decades to basically push for the public funding of religious schools, right? They want to form their charter so they can still call themselves public, but really it's only publicly funded, right? They have no problem with the public funding the schools. They have a problem with a public school curriculum that is about 
teaching our kids what they need to know about the world, to, to expand their knowledge of the world, to pique their curiosity, and to create that critical awareness of the world so that they could be participants in a democratic culture, right? And they can help determine the course of their own history, their own futures, right? That they're not going to be forced into a box. They're going to be able to explore what their joys are, what their hopes are, what the directions are. They're going to use their creativity, their criticality, their, you know, like imagination to be who they're going to be. And the idea about public schools, right, as a bastion of democratic culture, of a democratic society, is that you need to be able to have that space to build that kind of criticality, that idea that you are wanted to be a participant. And yes, it has always been a struggle. Right, the kind of exclusions that happened from the beginning. But if you look at any democratic nation, culture, whatever, worth its salt, it has always been connected with a commitment for broad-based open open education. Right. The idea that Benjamin Franklin, ironically, right, right down the street from us, right, Philadelphia. Benjamin Franklin talking about the importance of public education to a democratic society. The survivor, the survival, the survival of the republic, right? Because dogma and propaganda is not compatible with a democratic culture. You need disagreement. And I'll just give you the baseline, right? Ricky Chaikin, right, who's a member of the school board at Penridge. Ricky Chaikin said it best, I think, for her cohort, right? And I'm not going to say it. This is a direct quote, but it's almost a direct quote, but I know there's, like, words that I'm going to get wrong. But it was like this. She said this at a meeting, and she didn't just say it once, but she said, we know that there were kids that were graduating Penridge who didn't love America, Penridge, right, their school system should teach them to love America, right? And what she meant by that, based upon her actions with her, was not that, well, well, first of all, it was a very specific kind of love, right? It was adoration. It was worship. She wants kids to learn to worship America, Right? Because that's, I mean, that's really what it is, right? I mean, when you start saying that you're not allowed to talk about the atrocities that were committed in this nation, the genocide of indigenous people, hundreds of years of slavery, the exclusion of women from the Constitution, the suppression and violence of working against working people, Right? I mean, like, you, it goes on and on and on, right? To say that we can't talk about those things is that that is no longer education, is no longer history. That is dogma and propaganda. And I talked about this on the show on Monday, so I'm not going to repeat everything that I said on Monday, but that's the thing, right? What does it mean to 
love a place that you're part of? Or what does it mean to be committed to a place that you're part of? If you're committed to white capitalist patriarchy, that's one thing. That's not democracy. If you're committed to Christian nationalism, that's, that, that's a different thing that is not democracy. Democracy starts from the premise that everybody brings something different to the table. There's a wide variety of perspectives. You don't, it's not a pre-requirement to believe the dogma before you can participate. No, the fact that you have a different perspective is your precondition, is your entry key to democracy. The faith of democracy is the faith in everyday people. The faith that people, for all their differences, right, should be part of the process and have some sort of degree of determination over their future. And it starts from a premise that people will not agree, that they will disagree. That's why we have things like voting. <laughs> but in order for the voting, in order for that participation to be meaningful participation, you have to train people on how to be critical in the world. And I have a fact-based basis for discussion and arguments. A reality-based, let's say, because it goes beyond facts. Right? It's not just like, this is hard, this desk here is hard. No, that's okay, that's a great fact, but that doesn't mean anything in, in, unless you have the context. But when we debate over like things like, who has the right to love? When we have debates over who is allowed into this restaurant, who is allowed to be an elective office? Whose perspective should adopt? The, the solution should always be an expansive one. I mean, as much as people kind of knock the signs that are on people's lawn, they were on my lawn too as well, you know. So love is love, right? It's not love is defined by a very specific category of people. No is that there's going to be different kinds of relationships, different kinds of things. Some people are going to love the, the opposite sex. Some are going to love the same sex. Someone's going to be all, the, all this kind of stuff, right? We all know this. This is common. What the school district is trying to do is trying to be a force in limiting people's options and putting blinders on them so that they will follow the dogma and become anti-democratic subjects subjects to an authoritarian governance process. And it start. look, these people on the right have are, these people on the right have been at this for decades, longer really, but decades. They're not dumb, they are well-funded, and they decided that they were gonna spend this 40, 50 years 
investing in building institutions and quote unquote knowledge, ideological lines of argumentation, and the institutional structures to support them in order to accomplish what they're doing right now. Most people believe that that was not possible, right? The irony of what, of what these people are doing right now is it's making a mockery of their own claims. Like, they claim the Red Wizards of Thay who run our school board, right? These extremists who run our school board here in Penridge and are trying to do it in, in Central Bucks and are doing it across the country. They say that what we're trying to do is have a curriculum of American exceptionalism. Right? And look, this is a discourse that has been critiqued for generations. Right? The arrogance of that kind of position. But for better or for worse, a lot of people, I would even say most people, carried some of, who live in this country believe some part of that, that America was exceptional. And that we didn't need to take care of our democracy. We didn't need to invest in the institution of democracy. We didn't need to invest in our public schools. We didn't need to invest in a critical media. Instead, we handed over to the corporate hacks who sliced and diced up our media. We handed over to the anti-taxers who defunded our schools. We handed it over to the to the to the, to the neoliberals who went out and basically decided that, oh, public goods are bad, so we have to take money away from the parks, we have to take the money from recreation, we have to take money away from music, from the arts. All those things that are vital to a democratic culture. We're going to take public space and we're going to privatize them. We're going to limit the funding to libraries so they have to kind of like beg for funding. Right? I mean, all the things that are essential... <laughs> We've allowed over time, over decades, to be handed away. We lost faith in democracy and gained faith in the market. And the market is just another word for capitalists. The people who benefit from the accumulation of that wealth, regardless of the impacts on all of us. I'm not saying like, Oh, it's like one or the other. No, but what I'm saying is that we went, we did market fundamentalism, right? And this is Republicans, Democrats alike, committed to the market as the all solution and con contributed to the divestment from public education, the divestment from public media. And at some level, those of us who grew up when all this was happening, kind of like, still carry with us this, this idea that, the, oh, the Supreme Court will take care of it. They'll save us, right? Or our institutions, the media, the, you know, the, the fifth estate, they're, gonna, they're so critical and they're going to kind of hold them unaccountable because we believe that that's the purpose of journalism, right? And we let them wither on the vine. And that's on all of us, right? Regardless of party and all this stuff. But meanwhile, you had a very small group of people that had a ton of money that we're building for this moment, the challenge to democracy itself. The tax on public schools are one. If you look at what happened 
with the overturning of Roe v. Wade last summer. That's another. It didn't happen just because, oh, people change their minds. No, it happened through a systematic investment in a legal infrastructure as a building a pipeline to put conservative judges on the bench and a party, the Republican Party, who was committed to doing nothing but were taking away the rights of women. Right? And now we have a school board that's going to say, no, you can't talk about that stuff anymore. You can only talk about how America is good. How America is the shining beacon of light on the hill. America. <laughs> America. <laughs> right? So that's where we are, you know? And, uh, and I don't know. I mean, you know, I go back and forth on this all the time. You know, cause you study this stuff. This is one of the things I study, right? Social movements and kind of democracy and democratic theory, all this other kind of stuff. And, you know, the, the, the hopeful part of me is invested in the organizing that I'm seeing around these, like in the school boards in our, you know, in our backyards the organizing that we've seen since the overturning of Roe v. Wade. The, the, the tragedy of this, and, and maybe this is always the case, and I don't know, I haven't quite settled myself on this, but the tragedy is, is that we have to wait for there to be destruction, crisis, before there's an impetus to organize and respond. And that doesn't mean people have not been organizing. I mean, look, I've been active. I know people who have organized their entire lives, been part of a union movement, who and they, it doesn't matter, right? They're always organizing, always attempting, always kind of like, I mean, you know what I'm talking about, right? So it's not, I don't mean like blanket statement, nobody was doing this, but for whole communities to become aware that they need to actually become to decide, right, to take action, to resist really horrible things. And, and, and so that's kind of where we are. So that, that's where, we, where, you know, our focus is going to have to be here on this show, at least, you know, um, here on this show and part of Raging Chicken is going to be focused on turning back the tide of this kind of like evil wave. <laughs> you know, I, mean, I don't know what else to call it. Because we owe it to ourselves, we owe it to our communities, we owe it to our kids, we owe it to the future. And it's one of the most, I don't know, heartening things has been to me is to see that, you know, I, yes, obviously, elections are, are critical, right? I mean, we have to elect people who are not, who are going to, make different choices when they're like on a school board or in the county commissioner's office or in the, in the governor's mansion. Yes, absolutely. 100%. But what's been heartening to me is that it hasn't just been the kind of normal ebb and flow of election organization, right? That the communities have actually been building sustainable organizations that are designed to redefine what this community is about because you, what, what, We've allowed, if you want to put it like that, or who has taken us, who has taken over, we, we can't allow them to continue their, their reign. 
So the organizing continues and deepens beyond just questions of getting this person elected, beyond this person elected, but finding places to build community, right? To come together, to get to know our neighbors again. Have the joy of being, making collective decisions, thinking about the future and demanding justice of rejecting extremism and this kind of power grab by these Christian nationalist extremists. I mean, it's just like crazy. So anyways, that's kind of what's been a lot on my mind and where everything is right now in my brain. <laughs> and as I was just, you know, over at the high school this morning, I, I can't help but look as, as, as absolutely, as much as the school board stuff absolutely tears me apart. And after a Monday show, like, you know, I heard it from my wife and my daughter, like, you were yelling a lot, <laughs> right? <laughs> like, I'm like, oh, I'm sorry. Um, but it really does, it just tears me apart. But as much as that, you know, I'm going over to the high school and I'm, I'm dropping off my, my son for orientation and stuff. And I just, I look at this, this place, this school, and I, there's still this deep part of me that believes so much in the mission of that place, of that school, of the public education. You know, it's like, you know, Penridge has three middle schools and they're all kind of come together in high school. I know this is like, everybody knows this, right? I get it. Right. But I'm just like, and I'm looking at like all these kids kind of walk in there and this is just like, you know, the first year of class, like ninth, ninth graders walking. And you could, you know, I'm thinking like, man, there's, you know, people didn't, it's like, each step of the way, you have this like small elementary school, and then they kind of go to like a, go to a, a, a bigger pool, and they, there's more kids, right? That they're come from different areas, and now it's even a bigger group of kids that are coming together, and they're getting to know each other all over again, and having to kind of, you know, people from all over the map, politically, socially, kind of like you know, ideologically, uh, materially. I mean, and you know, I, I'm in this, I'm in this, this line, and there's like you know, in front of me, there's like a you know, it's like a minivan, just a, you know, kind of the everyday minivan, nondescript minivan, right? And then behind me, there's like a BMW, and then like two things up, there's a you know, kind of a, a, a like a, a municipal uh, pickup truck, right, taking their kid in. That's that's what public school is supposed to be, right? I mean, that's who we are. We're all of those people, and public schools are the place where we get to get to negotiate all that stuff. Hey, Emily, what's up? So that's, that's, you know, I, I just, I, maybe I'm just too much of a kind of an optimist or too have that too much of this wide eyed, you know, enthusiasm for public education. I don't know, but that, that nonetheless, it was there today and I just felt good. And all the more reason why we got to defend it. Right. And so I started thinking about this and, you know, and I, and my, my wife had told me about this too. And I had heard a little story uh, about that, but I, I just caught it like a headline or something. So I went back and listened to it today. And I started thinking about how amazing this is. It's like New Jersey has just become like the first state in the country that was going to require climate change education. Right. And they, they've, they've already done it for a year. Right. And, and, 
it's just like, I, let me read you a piece of this article. This is from NPR. Um, let's see, where do I want to do here? Start up with story of a particular student, right? Well, here I go. I'll, I'll just read you from the beginning. Okay, so it says, Evelyn Lansing, a senior at Hopewell Valley High School in Pennington, New Jersey, brushed purple glaze under a clay tile as the school year came to an end in June. Lansing and her classmates spent weeks researching the impacts of human-caused climate change in their, on their communities and their own lives. And their bas-relief tiles and the three-dimensional images sculpted onto them represented something each of them learned. Lansing's tile featured a blueberry branch, a nod to the rich agricultural heritage in New Jersey, which has earned it the nickname the Garden State. Quote, a lot of those things that we're used to seeing aren't going to be able to be grown here with the continuation of climate change, unquote, said Lansing, who comes from a family who grows their own food. New Jersey, a state with roughly 130 miles of coastline, is already confronting multiple climate realities, from more frequent flooding and extreme heat to air pollution from wildfire smoke in Canada. In New Jersey classrooms, students are facing these realities head-on. In 2020, the state became the first in the country to adopt standards requiring climate change to be taught across grade levels in nearly all subjects in K-12 public schools. Those standards were rolled out last year, including in the ceramics class at Hopewell Valley Central High. Right? And it goes on, and it goes on, and what's amazing about this is the fact that they're teaching it across the curriculum. It's not just like, here's the science stuff, right? And now we have to learn what parts per million is. No, no, no. You're thinking about communication. You're thinking about science. You're thinking about the impact on the human condition. And because these are teachers... <laughs> who were instrumental in bringing forth this curriculum. All those teachers who are designing this curriculum know that you don't talk to a first grader in the same way you talk to a 12th grader, right? Just like anything else. So the way that they build in climate education in kindergarten and first grade is very different than they're going to do in 12th grade. But nonetheless, it becomes part of the conversation early on. It doesn't come something where suddenly they come in high school and they have to confront, like, climate catastrophe is about to burn down the world. No. They're thinking about it as not just a crisis, but also the possibility of solution. How do we talk about this? How do we come up with solutions? What do we need in our community to make this happen? What do we need to know and what can we do? And this feeds into a whole bunch of other stuff. I mean, you know, I've talked about this in the show before, too, as well. Like Elizabeth Fiedler down in uh, Philadelphia, right? She's put up for legislation about solars in schools. Right? The idea is we have these, these, these big schools with giant flat roofs on top of them. Why not put solar panels up on them? Right? And once you get the solar panels up there, not only does the school then, therefore, produce its own electricity... Right? But when people are not in school and the sun is still shining, that electricity can actually be fed back out into the community. Lowering an entire community's electrical cost. Oh, my God, how cool is that? And like they've done at other some colleges and universities and some public schools across the country, not only do you put the solar panels up there, but you bring monitoring stations into the school itself. So it become part of the curriculum. If I'm in, say, like a class, I don't know, like in a science class, right, like a STEM class, one of the things that I could be doing is monitoring, like, how much electrical output am I getting on kind of sunny days versus cloudy days, right? How much does the angle of a solar panel impact the, you know, the effectivity of that solar panel, 
right? What are some of the ways that we could have improved upon these solar panels, right? What are the difference in battery systems, right? And kind of the storage of that energy. What are some of the challenges there? Right? I mean, so that can be here. And then, okay, if we need to be sustainable, I mean, just like I've talked about this before too at the, at the um, uh, Penridge North, right? They have like in some of their STEM classes, you know, this, 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 this one guy, I'll give him a shout out, uh, Mr. Donnelly, or it goes, um, Mr. Connolly, I'm sorry. Um, he has this like sustainable agricultural system in his, in his, in his classroom, right? I mean, it's like they've got a huge fish tank, right? And the fish are swimming around, right? You know, and they're eating and then they're pooping and they're peeing. And then that goes down into another vat, right? Because that is now not just wastewater, that is fertilizer. And the fertilizer gets kind of pumped up to kind of help water the plants that are growing in vertical gardens alongside the wall. And the kids are participating in this. And not just in terms of like studying it from abstractly, but even like, Learning how to do it, right? What kind of food do you feed it? What kind of food is most effectively? How do you, what do you need to do? Oh, there's these plants in this, this one particular, um, this vat. Why that plant as opposed to a different plant, right? What plants grow best in there? And what kind of crops could you grow in a vertical garden using this kind of system? I mean, when you integrate it in there, it's not about, we're no longer talking about building, talking about climate change is only, only crisis. We're talking about actively being part of a solution and building a culture of a solution and sustainability moving forward. In history classes, right? You could be looking at say, huh, it's so interesting. How did people who lived in kind of like arid climates, right? Like, were there any historical lessons that they learned about how to cool things? And sure enough, there's these amazing kind of like ancient technologies that utilize the wind and kind of caverns as a way of kind of drawing, of, of being cool, a way of having wind systems that would run that drive kind of water and under, underground aqueducts so, so they wouldn't evaporate. And so, I mean, I mean amazing things you could do. And what would that look like if we integrated some of this stuff now, right? And it says your own, your own community becomes, right, a space to try to figure out how we make this whole community better. Right? And that, that for me is like, that's the, the baseline of what public schools could do. But that's when we allow ourselves that space to have that kind of forward thinking about what do we need to do? What's the education we need for the future? Not try to kind of push kids into some sort of abstract, um, trying to watch my language a little bit here. <laughs> One of these kind of like abstract, kind of like BS nostalgic versions of the past to try to keep them looking backward to a, a past that never really existed to begin with, to keep them in their place, as opposed to thinking about the possibilities. And, and, and that's the other side of it, right? Is that if we're able to turn over the school board, in, the Pen in Penridge, in Central Bucks, right, in Palisades, in North Penn. Well, North Penn's already there. Council Rock, Souderton, Quakertown, right? If we're able to kind of turn those things over, we can start thinking about what's, what do we need? What's possible? And that's really what all these folks are terrified of. They're... This is their effort. Their, their, I won't say it's their last effort because that's, that's a dangerous kind of comment to make because they'll always be there. This is their current very powerful effort to 
control all of us. So big stakes, right? Big stakes. So the last thing I want to talk about today, and then uh, I promised everybody that is in uh, the sound of my voice <laughs> in my household that I would be uh, relatively short today. Um, that I wouldn't kind of be spending a ton of time. Um, but I did want to kind of um, talk through it a little bit more detail. I've mentioned this before on the show, but I wanted to talk through a little more detail um, about the case of Stephen Oros. Um, and Steve Oros, you know, he's a colleague of mine at Kutztown University. Uh, he had a heart transplant back in 2021. And we've had him on the show to talk about this. We've talked about this quite a bit. Um, so, and if you recall, he had a heart transplant in 2021, right? And so this was after the, uh, the you know, this is going into year two, right, of the pandemic. And in the fall of 2021, um, Kutztown made a very, very strong push, or I should say Kenneth Hawkinson, the president of Kutztown University, Kenneth Hawkinson, um, decreed that Kutztown will be going back um, in person and there are going to be no exceptions, right? Basically, right? it wasn't exactly those words, but it was there. And Steve was... Um, he had his heart transplant in early uh, 2021, and he knew there was going to be a long recovery time. So he took medical leave in that spring, right? Obviously, you have you know, heart transplant. That's pretty serious stuff. It's going to take a long recovery. But he worked his butt off, right? He worked his butt off. He went through all the physical therapy. He did all the work that he needed to do um, because his goal was to get back in teaching in the fall of 2021. Well, you know, his, uh, his doctors were amazed, right? They were, they were amazed at um, the work that he put in. He said, man, you know what? You're healthy and strong enough now that um, we agree that you can go back to teaching in the fall, right? However, there's a caveat. The caveat was this, you're strong enough, you're going to be healthy enough to actually do your duties. However, we would only support that if you're going to do that teaching online because COVID was still rampant, if you remember, and anyone, not just Steve, but anyone who's had a recent heart transplant was in one of the highest risk categories of, of dying if they got COVID. So they said, as long as you teach online, we can, we can get behind that, but there's, you can't go back into the classroom because then you're risking death. And Steve was thrilled, right? And the story when he, he came on our show, you know, came on the show, he said, he was thrilled. He thought this was good news. He calls up the university, says, guess what? I, I know you got your stuff, you got the classes, and you know what? You're not going to have to scramble because I'm going to be able to come back and be able to teach those classes, right? And he was thrilled. And they said, oh, great. Well, we're going, you know, we're doing all in person. And he's like, well, well, this is the thing I need to talk to you about. We need to make some kind of arrangements. You know, I've been doing this now. I've done it before. You know, uh, we have kind of way these classes that I, that I teach have been taught online before. Um, I could do this, but I, I could do it all. Hand. So that's all I need to make sure these are online. I uh, have to have them online classes. And the university said, no. And they're like, uh, he's like, I'm, I'm sorry. You know, just like a flat out. No, not even like, like, well, listen, we're going to have to talk. No, no, just no. And he's like, well, wait a minute. He's like, but I, I could do my job. Why? I'm risking life and limb. And it's like, yeah, well, no. 
And so we said to them, right, as you heard on this show, right, um, he said to them, he said, look, I, this is what counts as like a disability, right? So I, 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 I have to talk to the ADA, the, you know, talk to the disability service. I got to talk to the disability office, right? I mean, I, I need to file an ADA request. And he was told, you can go ahead and do that, but I'll tell you what they're going to say. They're going to say this is an unreasonable accommodation that it's going to fundamentally change the nature of this, of the instruction, and therefore does not qualify for an accommodation under the ADA. Because the ADA has really specific language, right? You can't just get an accommodation regardless, but say if it so fundamentally transforms the work or produces undue hardship on the institution, or in this case, the students, the university claims that was the truth, then they could deny the ADA request. Right. So Steve's like, but that's 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 whatever. But he did it anyways. Right. He said, even though he was told by a person who was not authorized to tell him that to say that, you know, no, we're going to deny that request anyways. He went through the ADA request and guess what they did. Right. That office that was supposed to be kind of looking out for people with disabilities. That's supposed to be the advocates of the people with disabilities. In the institution basically denied his request in this blanket statement. And it started to come out that this happened to several other faculty members too as well. So Steve is like, this is ridiculous. So they basically said, you either come back in the classroom or you have to take unpaid leave, right? Because he was out of sick days because he just had the surgery he had to take a semester out of. Either you come back in the classroom and risk life and limb, or you could take unpaid leave for a semester and we'll hold your job for the semester. Then you come back in the spring. If you can't come back in the spring, well, I guess we're gonna have to talk about whether or not you're gonna be able to work here anymore, you know, that kind of thing. So that was the background story, right? And so Steve, thank God, right? Because he wasn't getting help from anybody else, right? You know, well, I'm not gonna do this right now. Um, he wasn't getting help from anybody else, right? From any other people that you would think that would be like shouting this from the rooftops, calling the local media as an advocate of faculty members to get out there and make sure, can you believe what's, what's happening here at Kutztown University in the midst of the pandemic? No, crickets. Or lots of excuses about why nobody could do anything. So Steve sued. And he just won his case. So this is uh, from Susan Snyder in the Philadelphia Inquirer. Let me just read you a little bit of this. And this is a huge victory. And I'm so psyched that Steve is going to be back on the, sh on the show soon. We just got to kind of nail down a date. So here, at Kutztown University, a Kutztown University professor who had recently a, had a recent heart transplant and was denied his request to teach online during the pandemic has won a victory in court. A U.S. District Court judge ruled last month that Stephen Oros III, 63, an associate professor of psychology at the Berks County State University, should have been allowed to continue to teach online even after the school moved instruction back in person. Quote, this is from the judge, quote, instead of showing compassion to a valued tenured professor who, despite having recently underwent a heart transplant and was trying with all his might to return to campus for the fall 2021 semester, the university showed callous indifference 
by refusing to consider Professor Oros's individual circumstances as the law required, wrote U.S. District Court Judge Jeffrey Schmiel, or Schmel. Instead, the university summarily denied his request for remote accommodation, quote, based on recently devised, inflexible, and unsubstantiated policy that any request to change the course modality from in-person to remote would be considered a substantial alteration to the course offerings and would, be, would represent an undue hardship to the university and students, unquote, Schmel found. But the judge did not grant summary judgments on damages, and Oros and his Westchester-based lawyer, Lori McKinley, said they are asking for the court for reconsideration. At this point, though, he is entitled to back pay, his lawyer said. McKinley said the issue of being able to work remotely is really important for those with disabilities far beyond the pandemic implications. Quote, there are some people foreclosed from having a job just because they can't access the workplace, unquote, she said. Quote, but they are qualified to do the work. We have to start understanding remote work accommodations as something like a virtual ramp. Kutztown University spokesperson Matt Santos said the university's lawyers, along with lawyers for Pennsylvania State Center of Higher Education, of which Kutztown is a part, are reviewing the judge's decision. Like, as of this writing, right? This was, let me see when this article was published. This is right after the, it came out. So August 11th, right? So a couple weeks ago. So as of this, the university, it, they did found by a federal judge breaking the law and have, by callous disregard, they would still, they're still considering a potential appeal, at least according to that statement that Matt Santos gave, reviewing this stuff and continuing appeal as opposed to being freaking human beings. Right? It's just like, and they and what they do to here too. So let me. I'll say one. I'll read one more part to this. Right. So, Oros's request was one of four that Kutztown received, and all were denied. Quote, and this is from Matt Santos. Quote: The decisions were based on the requester providing the appropriate medical documentation, the impact of the disability, and whether or not the requester accommodations met the ADA definition of reasonable. Santos said at the time. Quote, accommodations are considered reasonable if they do not create an undue hardship, do not cause direct threat to health and safety of others that would not consider a fundamental alteration, unquote. This is back to the article. The four were approved for family medical leave, Santos said at the time, which would have allowed them to draw on benefits offered by Kutztown of the state system, including the use of up to 90 accrued paid sick days, sick day leaves per calendar year. Oros's case um, came as universities around the country were attempting to return to as normal a year as possible with in-person classes following the release of the COVID-19 of vaccines. Some professors, like Oros, were seeking exemptions for a number of reasons. Absent universal, universal guidelines, colleges set differing bars, some saying they were guided by American Disability Act, which allows for reasonable accommodations. Some took a hard line, leaving no room for exception. And the judge found that allowing Oros to teach and conduct office hours online would not have fundamentally altered the university's pedagogical model. The university, the, university, the judge said, did not show any effort, let alone good faith effort, to accommodate him upholding Oros's discrimination claim, right? And that's it right there. And, and I'll just remind you again, and I've talked about this before, is like, I just remember when a, a former president of our union, Amanda, 
our local union. When we were, we found out that there was an, a, 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 an adjunct faculty member who had to have suddenly, like unexpectedly, life-saving surgery, right? In order for this person to continue on living and breathing, they had to have this surgery. They had to scramble to figure out, oh, my God, what am I going to do? And the problem was the person hadn't been there that long, so they couldn't, like, they, they didn't have a crude kind of medical leave, right, to take. And so the university was just going to summarily fire this person, thereby cutting them off from medical insurance before necessary surgery. And our former union president, Amanda, she actually went and kind of helped try to organize and said, look, what can we do here? The members of that person's department said, listen, we'll, we'll, scram we'll cover the courses. We'll make sure that this person can be taken care of, right? Amanda, the president of the union at that time, went to, went to the administration and said, look, we need to get, let's, let's put together a sick bank, right? People can donate their sick time, right, to cover this person so that they can have leave and they're not going to lose their benefits when they need life-saving surgery. We don't want that person to have to make a choice between, like, lifelong debt and bankruptcy and death, right? <laughs> and the administration said, no, we'd rather fire them. No. When other faculty members were willing to donate their sick time, he, they said no. So what happened? Amanda, with some others, helped get together a GoFundMe, basically, saying to donate money to help this person. The lack of humanity of that administration at Kutztown University is unconscionable. It is practically unimaginable if I haven't seen it for so long. And this is the perfect example, right? Steve Oros here, and now you go before the federal court. And it goes to show, I mean, I've said this for a, for a while, right? It's like the only thing this university will listen to, the university administration will listen to, are massive public, uh, public relations backlashes or lawsuits. Does that mean everybody in the administration is a horrible person? No. But it does mean the leadership at that thing has a callous, as I said, a callous disregard for humanity. And what kills me about it, right, especially the case with Steve, I mean, first of all, I've said this before about Steve Oros, is like, this is a guy that basically, he volunteered to do things for the administration when no one else would step up. He said, hey, you know what, I got this skill, I can do this. And even they would, and they wouldn't even pay him for it. He would do it on his own time, or they start to pay him and they pull it away, right? He's like the model faculty member, as far as from an administrative perspective. He is not somebody that wanted to rock the boat. He wasn't the biggest rabble rouser out there, but he was someone who was ethically committed, was ethically committed, and who was committed to his job at the university and the mission of the university. It still is. So there we have it. And he won. With back pay. And finding that the university was what we've been saying it was for a long time. And so look, this is the kind of thing that we need to be thinking about, right? I mean, seriously. is like reason, when reason fails, when good faith efforts in 
whether it's negotiating a contract, a union contract, or trying to figure out problems, when good faith efforts are ignored by one side, then we have to be prepared to take these kind of steps. And yes, there is risk. Steve knew there was risk for this lawsuit. That's a lot of energy and time that it took for him, and money, right? To go forward with a lawsuit like this. And that's where the community comes in, right? I mean, we had Mark Engler on this show not too long ago. He was talking about, like, how do you prevent um, progressive politicians from selling out, right? The base position, the base kind of, like, principle was that they need to be connected to movements. And movements need to be prepared to support those folks. When someone like, so a condition like this with Steve Oros, like, happens, you have to be prepared as a community to support this individual as a union to take the risk and fight publicly for them because it is right. So, yeah, but we're going to talk a lot more about Steve's case um, kind of in the coming weeks uh, when we get him on. Uh, we're also got like a show coming up. We're going to have uh, we're going to have a cool show coming up um, in a couple of weeks. Um, we're going to bring on some folks from the Bucks County Beacon to have a little chat. Uh, about progressive media and so I'm really excited looking forward to that um, and then uh, as always got a couple other irons in the fire and we'll see where we go from there but okay all right all right as promised I need to cut this off now otherwise I think I'm going to violate every principle that I've told my kids that I would do so uh, I've kept this under an hour so uh, there you go but listen, this is, uh, I appreciate all of you coming out. I appreciate the messages on social media uh, from folks who basically say, hey, you guys having a show today? We're missing a show. Um, so I appreciate all that. Um, look forward to uh, lots of cool stuff coming up. And uh, I want to thank you all for your support um, over and over and over again. All right. So this is Kevin Mahoney, editor and founder of Raging Chicken. Uh, have you all selves a great weekend. Um, and for those of you who've got kids going to school or you're going back to school yourself, here it is. Good luck. Have an awesome year ahead. And for the rest of us, let's get ready to fight. See ya. Where are my people? Where are my people? I guess I'll fly away now.